So let me just read to you from uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. It's probably one of the most misquoted scriptures, typically by people, I think, that probably got something going on in their life that shouldn't be. And it's like, hey, you know, you can't judge me. The Bible says you're not to judge. And, and that's a misapplication of that scripture. In the church, we absolutely have to judge. We have to be able to discern, recognize, and then deal with sin in our own lives and sin in other people's lives. So today, that's what we're going to talk about. I've had, over the last some number of months, um, gosh, maybe four instances of pretty substantial failure within our church, you know, sin failure within our church body. And um, three of them came to me and said, hey, listen, I have, I have something that's gone on in my life. I've repented from it, but, but I want to confess it to you. And they've confessed it to me, which is just awesome because it's done at that point, right? But the fourth one didn't happen that way. And um, when I had to confront it, it didn't work out very well. So I had a conversation about one of these scriptures that I'm going to share with you today with somebody who was a very um, important discipler of me early in my walk, uh, very well studied in the word, just awesome Christian person. And we were having a conversation about this one particular scripture, and um, their take was very different than mine. So that sent me off looking to see if I really understood it the way the Bible was teaching it. And it's been on my heart now for probably a month. So I want to share this with you because maybe we could just do a little exercise. Is there anybody in here that's pretty confident? Now, I, I wish everybody would say that they are. But practically, there's not any of us that aren't likely to get deceived, aren't likely to get some offense that happens and stumble into some kind of sin. Hopefully not a, a practice of sin that would be you know really bad going on in our lives. But the likelihood that we're going to get from now till the next life without committing sin is pretty small, right? Not that we can't, but it's, it's small that we will. If that's true, then we need to embrace the scriptures that teach us what to do when that happens, whether it's our own sin or somebody else's. And I think if, if we talk about it, you know, publicly, we, not, I'm not going to talk about individual people, of course, but um, although biblically there's instances where we would, but if we understand the heart behind why God says this and, and why he says that and, and why these things that seem harsh are supposed to happen, then when we find ourselves confronted, we'll be much likely to receive it in a biblical way such that we can get free from it. And if we understand all that same stuff, when we see it, we'll be more confident to be able to go and address it without fear of, oh, you know, what, what's going to happen to my relationship. The relationship, the only one that matters is your relationship with King Jesus. Now, I'm not telling you your relationship with your wife or your husband or your children isn't an important relationship, but I promise you, if you and anybody you have relationship with have an excellent relationship with King Jesus, then your relationship is going to be fine. If you're okay this way, it's awful hard to not be okay this way. Okay, that said, let's get started. Talk today about confronting sin, how we do it. What, what does the scripture teach about confronting sin? 
The second thing is, why is it necessary that we confront sin? And then the third thing is, how? How do I confront somebody who, who's, who it appears to me is in a sinful behavior in their life? And equally as importantly, how do I respond when somebody confronts me? Okay, lots of scripture. Matthew eighteen fifteen through 18. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Matter of fact, let me just go back a minute. This is the what. Like, this is what do we do when we have an awareness of sin, all right? Um, But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more of you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to, the chur- to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So when you see somebody who appears to have some, I mean, if it's obvious and you just know it, then you can confront it pretty directly. But it's always probably better to say, to ask a question than to make a statement. But the first one is in private. It's not public to the church. You, you don't call the pastor and say, hey, so-and-so, you know, don't hit preacher beeper and say somebody's in sin over there. Run over there and deal with it. No, your job as a Christian is you deal with it. Now, there may, be some, there may be some circumstances, you know, maybe you're a woman and it's a man, you know, you take your husband. And maybe you're a woman and it's a man and you don't have a husband. Then maybe you take an elder from the church. I mean, it, it, there's, there's reasons that make sense why you might not just personally all by yourself go. But the point is, step one is you go in private. Because we don't want anybody to be shamed that doesn't need to be shamed. If they repent, there is no more shame. If they confess, that it's done. It's gone with. So step one, you go, you address your brother or sister, and if they repent, you've won them back. Hallelujah, they're back in God's grace. But if they don't, then you take two or three witnesses. I starting to get a little dicey there because it's going to feel a little bit like gossip. But, but you'll get to that point because the Lord will bring you to that point. If that person's not going to repent, there will be another witness. And, and then you'll have the opportunity to go in together. And if that person still does not repent... Then you bring them before the church. And here's where this person and I disagreed in our understanding of the scripture. I thought this was saying, actually literally thought it said, and if they refuse to repent before the church, then you put them out. You treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. This friend of mine said, no, 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 that means you embrace them as if you're an evangelist and it's a lost person and you're trying to bring them into the kingdom. So I studied it. And I mean, I studied it big time. I couldn't find any commentary that agreed with that perspective. It was all you treat them as an outsider. So then I started looking for scriptures to to help me to understand exactly what is he trying to say. Let me give you some of those. Oh, wait a minute. Before I do that, you take it to the church. If they don't repent, you treat them as as a Gentile or a tax collector, as an outsider. And then this verse, that you see this verse in other places in the Gospels, Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on her earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And, and that thing is used uh, all kind of crazy different ways. I, I shouldn't say crazy. It, it, one of the contexts, I think, is I'll give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you 
have bound on earth shall have been bound in heaven. So, so it's got a broad application, but in this particular context, it's saying if that person does not repent, you bind them on earth, they're bound in heaven. And literally, if, if you put somebody out of the church, or you know, it wouldn't be necessarily you at this point, it would be the eldership of the church, but you would tell them, listen, you are not welcome in any church. You can't go to the Lutheran church. You can't go to the Presbyterian church. You can't go to the Freedom Center. You are bound out of the, the family of God until you repent. And, and quite frankly, and, and we, we, sh- we have a pretty wonderful family here, but we could even be us more like Jesus. And it should be costly to not be able to participate with your church family. Costly in the sense that, man, how am I going to get by? Who's going to love me? Who's going to pray for me? What if I'm hungry? Who's going to feed me? The church ought to be so amazing, right? Jesus says you'll, they'll know you're my disciples by what? Your love for one another. Right? So when, when you say to somebody, you're outside the church, that should be like, no, then you've got to come to grips with your sin. Okay? But the point I want to make is God is saying, if you, my, my people, if you bind it here, it's bound there. So when they think they're praying to God or whoever knows what, they're bound. And when, when they've repented and we, we lose them and we lose them back into the family, it's done in heaven the same way. There's a, there's a lot of authority that we have as the body of Christ to use in love. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. Uh, the Apostle Paul speaking now. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and the swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now, Jesus says, don't judge or you'll be judged. And Paul says, are you not capable to judge within the church? It's a different judgment. When we judge, we're judging someone's sinful behavior in the anticipation that they'll repent and come back into a graceful relationship with the Lord. When Jesus says, do not judge lest you be judged yourself, it's, it's like a judgment under condemnation. You know, uh, I'm judging you to hell. So, so when we judge, we're not judging the person. If, you, if you're familiar, and everybody is, with Matthew chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, uh, that whomever should believe in him shall have everlasting life, right? But I, can, I always choke on that part. But he says, for the son did not come to judge the world. The world has already been judged, right? So what he's saying to us is, listen, I didn't come to judge anybody unto eternal death. I came that they might be saved. Here's your brother in a sinful situation. You're not to judge him unto his eternity, but you're to judge so that he might be saved. The, the motivation is to bring about the salvation. Okay, so when somebody is in a practice of sin and they're unrepentant, the scriptures teach us don't associate with them. Don't even eat with them. It's like, well, maybe if we invited them over for dinner and we could talk, that's not what the Bible is teaching us. And it seems harsh. And they said, the person I was talking with before, like, well, where's the love in that? I'm like, hey, listen, God is love. Love comes from God. 
If, if he tells us this, he loves that person, and he's having us express love because he knows the best way to get them back into a graceful relationship with him. Don't associate with them. Don't eat with them. Remove them from among yourselves. Second, <laughs> why do I have so much trouble preaching, saying the word Thessalonians? Second Thessalonians 3.6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. A little bit further in chapter 3, verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Romans 16, 17 Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. So here we are in 2 Thessalonians twice and in Romans. Keep away from them, do not associate with them, turn away from them. Sin is a big deal. It's a really big deal, and we have to deal with the sin. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Do not receive an accusation against an elder. So this is specific, right? This isn't every Joe in the church. This is the eldership of the church. In this church, it would be me, it would be Keith, and it would be Mike Pickover. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Let me stop for just a a second. If you read in the pastoral, I'm talking so fast, in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, what you'll find is, the process of bringing somebody into the position of eldership and their character must be so squeaky clean before you put somebody into the position of elder, right? Title might be pastor or, or role might be pastor, but title for me is elder. It's, it's elder in the church. And the reason why Paul says don't receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses is the devil is going to try to chop off the head of the church, Right. And, and, and the eldership should be held, and I'm not trying to tell you how wonderful I am, but the eldership should be held in such, an, um, such a posture that somebody's frivolous, hey, you know, I saw this or I saw that, requires witnesses, right, to come and, and bring an accusation against an elder. But when that comes, listen to what he says, those who, those elders who continue to sin rebuke in the presence of all. So when, when you rebuke me or Keith or Pick, it's a public rebuking it's not a private rebuking because that's the way the bible says and and he says so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning so when your when your eldership of your church is is in a transgression and and it's caught the rebuke happens publicly to whom much is given much is required and 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 if the if the eldership refuses to be Disciplined in the way the scripture says, how in the world is the, is the body of the church going to receive discipline from anybody, right? Okay, so that's kind of the what. What do we do when we, when we have somebody in sin? Jesus says, hey, first you go in private. If that doesn't bring about repentance, you go with a couple other witnesses. If not, you bring them in front of the church. If, if they refuse to repent, then put them out. Now, Paul, he doesn't go through all that background so much. He just says, listen, if they acted and behaved in this way, don't have anything to do with them. Don't even have a meal with them. Don't, have, don't think like you need to go do something other than separate them from the church. That should be very painful to be separated from the church. Okay, why? Why do we do that? Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise 
so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. It's an example that there is consequence to sin. If you don't honor your parents, I talked about this particular scripture, I think, last week. If you don't honor your parents, the Bible promises you things will not go well for you. If you're wondering, how come I can't get out from underneath this black cloud? Look to your relationship with your parents. Good parents, it's easy to honor them. Not so good parents, harder job, you still have to do it. So what the Bible is telling us here is this, in this context, is that if you're in the sinful place of not honoring your parents, you're going to have a rough life and a short life. So, so the why we address it is to get you out of that situation. Hey, listen, I heard you talking about your mom and dad the other day, and I'm telling you, God is not going to honor your life if you're going to be that way about your parents. You've got to confess that sin and repent from it. Why? So that your life can go well and you live a long time. Okay, next one, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 32. Man, this one's powerful. This is Paul teaching the church at Corinth about their way that they're doing communion. It's like they come together for the Lord's meal and, and one guy gets early and he drinks all the wine and he gets bombed. And another one eats up all the food. And when the person who doesn't even have money for food shows up, there's not even anything for him to eat. So this is Paul speaking to that context. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, for this reason, many, of you, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Many of you are weak, many of you are sick, and some of you are dead. That's what that means. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Okay, so a man must examine himself. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. It's sin to not rightly judge the body. Okay, so... But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. So if, if it's time in this context again to take the Lord's Supper, to take communion, I should be examining and judging myself. I'm examining myself. Is there something wrong in my relationship with the body? Answer yes. Then judge myself to the point where I need to go fix that before I take this. Right? Judging not judging myself unto death and condemnation, but judging myself unto this particular situation. Okay. Um, eats and drinks judgment. If you eat and drink judgment to himself, and does not judge by For this reason, many of you are weak and sick, and a number are judged, or a number are sleepy. I'm sorry, I've lost my train of thought a little bit. The point I want to make is that that judging, when we don't judge ourselves, is by God himself. And God, in his judgment of our not rightly discerning the body, puts on a sickness, weakness, even death. You're like, well, wait a minute. God doesn't make people sick. I'm telling you, yes, he does. It tells you right here. Now, how he does it, he lets Satan do it. But he removes his grace. At the very least, he removes his grace and allows sickness to come. If you want to look at it that way, that's okay. But that happened. By the Lord, because we didn't rightly examine ourselves. There was a judgment. Why is it that we should talk to people? Hey, listen, I know something about what's going on. I saw you, and, and you really shouldn't take communion right now. 
You, you, you get in that thing so that that person doesn't get weak or sick or ultimately die. Now, here's the cool thing. <laughs> You're like, but God killed them. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. What's the condemnation of the world? It's eternal damnation. It's hell. It's the lake of fire, right? So when God is doing this, he's doing this to keep us from this judgment that the world is going to be under. So he's telling the, the, the church that you could ultimately be judged like not the church if you don't repent from this particular behavior. Why do we do it? So that doesn't happen. Okay, James 4, 6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why do we confront somebody in their sin? Because somebody who's in a place of sin, do you understand that if, let's say the second step, I, uh, somebody has come to me and they've confronted my sin and I've refused to repent, okay? Now, um, what should my sin be? I'm telling lies, and they, they recognize I've been telling lies. When I am confronted in my sin and I refuse to repent, what I've done is I've said, this is God and this is me. I have decided to place myself above God, which is biblical pride. When, when the Bible talks about bad pride, that's what it's talking about. I put myself in that place. Now, that scripture right there says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. The minute I put myself in the position of biblical pride, I don't have grace. If I don't have grace, how in the world am I going to repent on my own? If you know I'm in sin and I'm resist, I am proud before God and he's resisting me, how will I ever get myself out of this situation that could ultimately cause me to be condemned along with the world if somebody doesn't come? Because there's no grace for me in pride. Well, but God understands it. Why doesn't he help? Hey, listen, man, he gets to write the rules, not me, not you. So why do we confront sin? Because when I'm in sin, there's no grace. If there's no grace, I don't even, can't even understand that I'm in sin. I need somebody to come and help me. Whew, sorry. First Corinthians chapter five, verses three through six. Paul again, poor Corinthians. <laughs> For I, on my part, though absent... Oh, let me give you some context. This is the guy, for the sake of the children, who has his father's mother, right? You adults know what that means, right? I mean, he's having his father's... Not his father's mother. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> has his father's wife. I mean, it's not that much worse. They're both nasty. But he has his father's wife, okay? That's what this guy is doing. So Paul's talking about that guy, for I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who, was so committed, who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Whatsoever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, so that he would not be condemned with the world. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? So Paul has literally bound this guy up and handed him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that in the day of the Lord his spirit might be saved, that he wouldn't continue on in this way. The second thing is this, and this is a congregational um, context here, congregational context, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Don't you know that when we come together and the Lord wants to bring about 
deliverance for Richard's lungs or, or, or who knows what. And we wonder, Lord, where's the anointing? Where's the anointing? Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you let that junk, me, you, the eldership of the church, allow that stuff that won't be repented of to be present in your congregation, guess what's not? The anointing. Yes. He, he says, I've told my church through my word that you are to deal with this stuff. And if you don't deal with it, then your whole lump is going to start, oh, well, they look right past sin at church on the street. You go there and be whoever you want. You think the anointing is present at a church? I mean, you know, homosexual seems to be the thing to pick on, but I don't know of churches that embrace other sins. But there are churches that embrace homosexuality. Come to our church. Put your money in our basket. We accept anybody for everything because Jesus loves you. He doesn't. No, he loves the person. Sorry. Here's a point that I need to make that I don't have in my notes. Somebody came to me about some sin that a person had. Two people, actually. They weren't Christians. They were going to church, but they weren't Christians. It's a whole different conversation. Someone who has, is not a Christian has made no confession to the lordship of Jesus. They're heaping up upon themselves wrath for the day of wrath. But, but today, we have no claim to their behavior. Right? As a country, I mean, you know, we, we, we might have some, because we want God to bless our country, but you don't go to somebody and say, hey, listen, you know what? You're living in sin, and if you don't stop it, you're going to not go to heaven because that's a sin. Because they might listen to you. If that's your message to them and they listen to you, you haven't done anything for them. Why? Because if they repent from that sin, are they going to heaven? They are not. They only go to heaven if they get Jesus. They have to get Jesus so that they can have his righteousness. Their garment is stained as can be, just like yours or mine was. And, and without the righteousness of Christ, the fact that they don't do whatever that is anymore, they're still not going to go to heaven. They're going to stand before Jesus and they're going to be, oh, man, I'm glad that guy told me to quit swearing or quit stealing because if I would have kept stealing, I couldn't come into heaven. And Jesus is going to look at me and say, who are you? Because they didn't have what was required to meet the covenant. So when you think about this, I'm not talking about, like Paul said, who am I to judge the world? That's already done. We're to judge one another unto restoration. Okay. Um, little leaven leavens whole lump. Are you okay? I mean, I don't hear the kids screaming yet. Can I just, there's just a little bit more? Okay. Then the, so, so the what was, you know, what do we do when we see sin? What's, what's the process? The second is, why do we do it? I mean, love is the, if you want to boil it down, it's love. And then, and then the third is how. And interestingly, I'm going to share with you the how in a number of places from a little bit further down in some of the scriptures I've already shared with you. So a little sneaky on my part. Okay, first, if you're the person confronting, here's the how of if you're the person confronting. Second Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So, so one of us that's got some kind of sin issue in their life is not our enemy. That's part of the problem the church has with reaching like the Muslims or the this ones or the that ones. It's like they're our enemies because they don't like Jesus. It's like, no, 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 no. That's never going to get people saved. We can't not love them into the kingdom. It's the kindness of God that leads someone to repentance, not the f- wrathful anger of God, right? Okay, so 
whenever we have to confront somebody, we have to have the right mindset. That person is not my enemy. That person is my lost brother that I love so much that doesn't even maybe recognize or isn't able to turn such that they can get back into a graceful relationship with the Lord. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and therefore, or thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So when, when we confront somebody with their sin, if they've been caught in a trespass, those that are spiritual, mature, confront them in a spirit of gentleness. We don't come with anger. We don't come with wrath. We come in a, in a gentle spirit, right? And then it says that we should be humble to the place that we want to be careful. You know, you know the saying, there but by the grace of God, go I. That could as easy be me as it could have been that person. So we be conscious that it could be us. We don't want somebody coming at us without a spirit of gentleness. We need to go to them with a spirit of gentleness. And then finally, bearing one another's burdens. How do I help you? How can I help you to get back into a right relationship with the Lord in this area of your life and fulfill the law of Christ, the, the law of Christ, which different, different opinions, most people think, love your neighbor as yourself, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. Speaking of Matthew seven twelve. How do we confront somebody? And everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Think about yourself in the most embarrassing, potential, public, exposing sin thing that you can imagine, and how would you want somebody to come and confront you and help you free? Save that picture and go do it that way. Matthew, um, <laughs> Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. If we stopped right there, without broader understanding of the scriptures, nobody would get dealt with anything, right? But you read on. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? Now, let's stop just a minute. Let's just assume why do you, you know, do not judge, but there's actually something to be judged, right? Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's not saying don't judge. He's saying, be careful when you go to confront this sin. If you've got some sin in your life, don't be trying to look through your mess and how to clean up his mess. Ask the Lord, is there anything, Lord? Is there sin in my life? Before I go confront my brother, man, I want to have clear vision so that I can truly help them. Am I looking past a plank or a log in my own eye? And then listen. And if he shows you something, deal with it. So that when you go to help, see, the end of this thing is actually taking the speck out of your brother's eye. You judged properly. You recognized the speck in his eye, somehow through the plank in your own. When you go there, you want to be so humble before the Lord, so humble before that person. You might even want to tell him, you know, the scripture says this, and I I had to do some serious introspection with the Lord. And guess what? I had some repentance of my own to do. Can I help you with yours? Okay, how do you confront? That would be the how you confront. What if you're confronted? 
James 4, 6 through 10. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Now, remember, I'm the one being confronted. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he, the devil, will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. How do we get... If, if In 1 John it says, if anybody sins and they'll confess their sin to the Lord, he is faithful and just or righteous to forgive them of their sins. What comes next? Of of all unrighteousness. So in the process of being confronted, if you understand that your confession cleanses you from all unrighteousness, problem solved. How do we do it? Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be broken, like contrite with regard to your sin. Oh my gosh, not proud, not arguing, you know, how do I know that's really a sin? What about this? What is like, no, just humble yourself, be broken and contrite that you may be exalted. Now, this doesn't mean you're going to be promoted to be pope, right? You're, you're exalted. You're lifted up back into a place of relationship with God. Not that you were necessarily disconnected eternally at this point, although at some point you could be. But he says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You're back in the place where you can walk in the light where God is. Okay, now back to Matthew 18. 15 through 20. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or, one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, now hear about this, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they may ask, it shall be done with you, or done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two of Two or three have gathered together in my name. I am in their midst. The previous scripture. Now, that, that's all con- contextually the same stuff, right? If your brother sins, go see him. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, right? Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two, or, this may be the second most misquoted scripture. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Why are they together? To confront sin. Where is Jesus when they do it? He's with them. What did the previous scripture say? Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. So you see, when somebody comes, oh, I'm getting shivers. When somebody comes to you to confront you in your sin, Jesus is with them. He's not with you, but he is with them. He's come with them to help them, to help you to repent from your sin. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. For where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. (laughs) 
my note I just said to you. If I'm the one being confronted, the Lord is present. Not because of me. Why? Because in my pride, he's resisting me. But because of the two or three that have been obedient to his word and have had the courage to come in love to help me out of the situation that I'm in. Or two or three are gathered in his name. There he is with you. Humble yourselves before the presence of the Lord. Okay, I'm, I'm pretty much I'm done. I, I, I just want you to know that I'm hoping that scripturally you can see that God is love. There's no question about it. He came to the cross on our behalf, right? There's no question about his love. But his administration, his government has processes and rules that might not feel like our perception of love. Except if we walk in our perception of love, we're walking outside of obedience. And outside of obedience, guess where we're at? Pride. Guess what happens in pride? Nothing, because there's no grace. So we have to submit ourselves to the administration, to the, the governmental process that God has given us so that we can bring about heaven on earth, so that we can bring about the fullness of the anointing, so that we can make sure that our brothers and sisters are not having hard, miserable... I mean, he said there's going to be stuff, but why have more stuff than you have to have, right? Right? The reason why I think this has been so heavy on my heart for the last month or so is someday somebody's going to confront some of you at least. If you're prepared and understand why God's doing it, not to punish you, not because he's mad at you, and you're not being punished, right? Because all of the punishment for the Christian is where? It's on the cross. So why is he doing it? It's discipline. Why? So that you won't be condemned with the world. So you'll be more likely in a biblical manner to be able to receive a hard thing than you would be if you didn't get this teaching. Maybe the harder job is the one that's got to go and confront the thing, right? You'll be more likely to go and confront it because I promise you the day is coming. God's going to show you something. He's going to let you see. We had a person teaching a class that said, hey, listen, if I'm in sin and you don't have a relationship with me, Don't you come talking to me outside a relationship. And I had to stop the class and say, no, that is not biblical. Because what if that's the only person that God made aware? What if the people that are close to you, you're careful that they don't get to see your thing. But you're not that careful with somebody who doesn't have an intimate relationship with you and God let them see it. Are you telling me you can't receive from a brother or sister who God has chosen to show it to? You have to. You have to. So if you're the person who's been tasked by the Lord with at least step one of the process, or maybe step two, or if you're an elder in a church, you might be step three of the process, then you have to understand how to do it in such a humble and broken way, knowing that, man, if easy as it's that person that could be me, then you'll be more able to go. And all of us will be able to walk with the Lord in the way that he wants to walk with us in the light and have his blessing and have his grace and have his mercy and all that kind of stuff. Amen? Amen. Okay. Two and a half hours of church. Wow, you guys are awesome. (laughs) When God shows up, it's hard to leave though, isn't it? Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the discipline. I thank you for the chastening. I thank you for the mercy and the grace. I thank you for all of it. I just pray, Lord, that we will be a congregation, a a cell within your body. I pray this for your whole body, Lord, but but this place where I'm the under-shepherd, Lord, I pray in this place that we will be obedient to your teaching that we will love one another out of any kind of sin situations and that we will truly, truly, Lord, be a city on a hill, a lit light that nobody could put a basket over that shines your glory everywhere that we go. 
that we may be fruitful in our lives here and that you may be glorified in everything that we do. In Jesus' name.